The e-commerce fuel podcast is sponsored by Shopify, the platform I personally use to host my own store. Why did I move to them from Magento, who I had been on for years? Well, Shopify has an enormous ecosystem of developers and apps. Their template framework and API are really well architected, and they're a hosted service, so I can focus on growing my business versus spending hours worrying about server issues. And best of all, they make me more money. Our business experienced an enormous 41% conversion increase after we migrated. Check them out at shopify.com. Welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast, your headquarters for building a six-figure-plus e-commerce business. I'm your host, e-commerce entrepreneur and Jeff Bezos wannabe, Andrew Derry. Hey everyone, it's Andrew here and welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast. Thank you for tuning in with me today as always. Good to have you with me. Today on the show, I've got a longstanding forum member, one of our top contributors in the private community, Miracle Wanzo from HipOndies.com. And Miracle has got a really cool story. It's probably her knowledge about e-commerce in terms of just knowing a lot about a lot of different areas in e-com is probably one of the uh, the broadest and, and deepest I, I know. She's got a ton of expertise there. So we get into her story, how she started her business, made the move from the corporate world over into e-commerce, her, her kind of uh, evolution from drop shipping to stocking her own products to, to branding. Uh, and we talk about some of the amazingly cheap Facebook clicks she's able to generate as well as uh, kind of women entrepreneurship and what it's like being, being a woman in sometimes very male dominated, at least in the online sense for online marketing and e-commerce, that tends to sometimes be the case. We get our thoughts on that as well. So fun discussion, excited to, to bring that to you today. One quick announcement uh, before we dive in though, IRCE, one of the biggest e-commerce conferences uh, in the US at least annually is going on in early June in Chicago. I think it's like the second through the fourth. And if you'll be in Chicago, uh, I haven't been before. I'm going to be going this time. I'm looking forward to, to checking out. It's traditionally been a conference a little bit geared toward larger retailers, uh, bigger brands. You know, we're talking mid seven or mid eight, sometimes nine figures, you know, big, big companies online. But there's a lot of independent merchants that own their own business as well that, that end up showing up. A, a lot of applicable information, of course, great networking. And we're going to be having uh, an event for private forum members who are out there. A limited capacity is going to be a little bit smaller, a little more intimate, open bar and appetizers on Wednesday evening, June 3rd. So if you're in the forum, check out all the details there. We'd love to have you there. If you're not and you've been interested, join up. We'd love to have you. It'd be great to connect. And even if you're not in the forum and you're going to be there, ping me on Twitter. I'd love to hear from you and potentially uh, meet up as well at Udarian be fun to just, I mean, that's, that's why we all go out there is, is to meet up with, with other people doing cool stuff. So uh, IRCE June 2nd through the 6th should be a good time. All right, let's go ahead and dive into today's discussion with Miracle Wanza. Miracle, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on today. Uh, thanks for having me on. I feel almost embarrassed. You've been probably one of, if not the most kind of uh, senior forum members. You know, you're like forum member of the year in 2014. You've added a ton and it's surprising I haven't had you on until now. And actually, I think this is the first time we've actually had a chance to kind of just talk, if I'm not mistaken. So it's... yeah. It's crazy. You think about online, you can have these relationships and feel like you know people really well over years and years without actually talking to them. It's crazy. So, <laughs> but excited to dive into your life and your experience because you've got a ton. So, I mean, just in a nutshell, can you give us a sense like what's your backstory? Obviously, kind of prep people on, on the couple of different websites you have and e commerce businesses, but how did you get started? Like, how did you make the move into those and ultimately get to where you are today? I started selling on eBay and 
got to a point where I felt like this was a long time ago. So this, I started selling on eBay in about 98. And maybe after a couple years of that, I felt like the money that I was spending on eBay, I could invest into having my own e-commerce website. So I did a few different things experimenting before I got into the lingerie business. I started selling clothes and then I didn't like the bulkiness, but I liked the industry. So I tried a couple of dropship sites and they, they actually did pretty okay. And it let me really learn how to run an e-commerce store. And then when I felt like I wanted to get back into, you know, an inventory based business, I went with lingerie because it's still in the apparel industry, but it's not big and bulky and things are tiny and you can ship them easily. Yeah, very cool. So you were working in the corporate world before you got started, right? Yeah, I was working at a pharmaceutical company, oddly, and before then a bank. Wow. So not in retail. And what was it? Was it just wanting to be your own boss? Was it you always kind of had an entrepreneurial bug? What was it that made you, that gave you the push to get going online? It was both. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. And then when I started having children, I didn't know beforehand that I wouldn't want to go to work. I wanted to work from home. So it wasn't something I planned for because I didn't know that that's what I was going to want to do. But once it happened and I decided, you know, I want to work from home, then it's, that's just the obvious choice. And today you've kind of, sounds like you've come through from eBay to drop shipping to stocking your own stuff. And then you also, you also have your own brand of lingerie as well, right? Yeah. I have a couple of brands and, and I don't really call them brands because When I started manufacturing, the model that I looked at was the model that retail stores look at. A lot of people don't realize it, but when you go into a Macy's or a Nordstrom, they probably have anywhere from six to a dozen brands that are quote-unquote house brands that are just their private label brands, but a lot of people don't know that those are private label brands. So that's kind of what I was going after with having my own product lines. So in terms of the mix right now, like what percentage of the stuff do you sell is your own kind of uh, your own brands that you've created and put your own name on? And what percentage is existing brands that you're reselling? I would say it's getting close to 50-50. And I definitely want to get to a point where it's probably like 90-10 or even 100% my own brands. That's cool. How does that, how did that migration work? I think... I mean, I'm kind of in that phase, needing to make that jump in the very near future in terms of starting to sell my own stuff and looking to do it alongside selling a lot of other brands right now. Was that something where it was harder than you thought in terms of getting customers to to buy your brands? Or did you see that just as a result of just having a decent product, putting your name on it and putting it alongside your catalog along other items, people just naturally bought it and it, and it worked that way? So... That It's interesting because I think in apparel, it's a little bit different because the niche brands occur frequently. It's not like I'm trying to sell, you know, a tablet or a phone or something like that. So someone who shops in this market often will go into a retail store and pick up a product line that they've never heard of before. Like a lot of it's brand driven, but still there's a lot of room for new brands or unique brands or quirky brands. So I think to answer your question, it's really a matter of making sure that you get enough eyeballs on the product. Because if someone is looking for, for example, a pair of pajamas and you have, you know, a cute pair of pajamas with the cute print and you can 
assure them that the quality is is good, you know, that they're not going to get something that falls apart, then the reluctance to try it, even if they've never heard of the brand, in my opinion, isn't that high in the clothing category. So I can see with maybe the visuals and the aesthetics, great, great designs, of course, great photography to show that off. How do you convey quality of material? Is it in the copy? Is it telling? Is it... I mean, because I'm guessing, I could be wrong, I don't buy a lot of lingerie, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I'm guessing, uh, you know, most people probably aren't super familiar with all the different grades of fabric and silk and things that you use. So how do you convey that quality apart from the pictures in terms of the durability? Right. You reference it in terms of what they may be expecting from another brand that you're familiar with. So for a lot of women in lingerie, it's fit and comfort. And maybe if Depending upon the fabric, there are fabrics that have issues with being washed, even if they're hand-washed. A lot of them can be really fragile and fall apart. And so you can just explain that it's durable. It'll last through, you know, machine washing if it's that tough, you know, won't snag, won't run. Just little things like that, that you learn to pick up what people have issues with with your product lines. And then you also know yourself because there are products that I have. I've probably worn most of the brands that I carry. So I know firsthand what has an issue with what, even though I know people buy it and they wear it and it's a brand that people love. I know what the issues are with that brand or that fabric or the fit or the quality. When you first branched out and started doing your own brand, was that something, it's a big leap for a lot of people. I think mentally, was that something where it was pretty easy for you to go in and make that leap, start making your own stuff a lot easier than you thought? Or was it something where was it a lot more difficult than you thought it was going to be from the outside? It was so much more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Really? And even to this day, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with it. I was a bit naive. And what happens is when you buy a bunch of lines, you see a lot of similarity in the styles and the fabrics. And I literally thought like, okay, there's got to be this place in LA that's like the generic lingerie manufacturer. And I could just go there and say, I want this style and that style and these colors, because I saw so much similarity across lines that I thought surely there's some place down there that's churning this out. So I was a little bit naive. And then when I got into it and had to manufacture, I don't like the process. I still don't like the process to this day (laughs) because there were too many nuances that I wasn't aware of that I didn't like. I didn't know. I mean, I'd get questions. I I use the sewing contractor here in San Francisco and one in China. And the one in San Francisco would call and ask me like, your buttonholes are on the wrong side. Are you sure you want them on that side? And I'm like, what? Buttonholes have a side? And there are so many little things that I had to learn, and, and I don't like it. But on the flip side, it's not all bad. And I think apparel is probably easier than a lot of other categories because there's no, you know, I don't have to pay like 80 bucks for a mold or something. I mean, like, not 80, but thousands of dollars or 80 thousands of dollars for a mold or something like that. It's pretty simple compared to manufacturing other things to get up and running. But I don't like the process. And no, it wasn't as easy as I thought it was going to be. And I may have been a bit naive with what I thought it would be like. Maybe that's a good thing. It's always good to be naive and get started as opposed to being scared away and never never taking the plunge. What's, What's your infrastructure look like today? And by infrastructure, I mean... Like, do you have a team that's working with you? Do you have a warehouse of your own that you keep a lot of this in? Or do you use uh, like a 3PL to fulfill it all? Yeah, what's your infrastructure and team look like? So I thought about that 
question. And I guess it kind of, sort of, technically could be a warehouse. I'm in a light industrial building. I call it an office, but from the landlord's perspective, it's not an office because it doesn't have exterior windows. But the building itself is about 90% warehouse, but I have a very small, maybe like 500 or 750 square feet of space because the items are really, really tiny. So, I mean, I guess you could say it's an office, but it's in a light industrial area. And then I work from home mostly. I don't work out of the office mostly because it is light industrial. And I use that for small things. And I use Amazon also for larger things that are you know, because they just have such huge advantages with their shipping rates. And then I have a few people outsourced to work from home. So if you have an order that comes in for something at the warehouse, do you ship out of the warehouse or do you use it kind of just as a holding bay to get stuff to Amazon and back and mm-hmm. forth? No, I ship small things. So if it's a pair of underwear, you know, a body shape or something small that can go in a poly mailer, then that comes out of there. If it's something that needs to go in a box like a robe or something probably weighing about two pounds or more, that's at Amazon. What's working really well for you, Miracle, right now in terms of traffic generation, in terms of conversion in the business today? For the past year, I've been focusing on paid traffic because when I started, you know, in the old days, SEO was like, I won't, I don't want to say you could like guarantee that you could get something out of SEO, but you almost kind of could. Like you knew if you did certain things with SEO that you would get the traffic and we all know it's not like that anymore. So I started really focusing on paid traffic and, and understanding how to make sure that I have a well set up website that's easy to navigate and really watching this, the funnel, the conversion funnel for paid traffic. Because once you get that nailed down and you know what to expect at each part of the process, then you can just go ahead and buy more traffic and still have your organic SEO, but you don't have as much control. And even this to this day, you don't have as much influence over how much traffic you can get from organic search. So when you say paid traffic, is there a certain channel that's, that's working really well for you, Facebook or AdWords or retargeting? What are you using? I'm using Facebook mostly, um, Google Shopping, retargeting, which it's weird because I, I think some forms of retargeting are better than others. And, and sometimes I feel like in some instances, retargeting for a product-based site may need a little bit more micromanagement than a lot of the retargeting providers have available. And I have had a Pinterest ads account for probably three to four weeks by now, which is still in beta. Pinterest seems like it would be a perfect fit for your business. It is, but it's so beta and I've never used anything that was in beta before like this, like an ad platform in beta. So it'll be interesting to see how it evolves over time and how rapidly it evolves. But it's um, it's cumbersome at this point because everything has to be done manually. And they, it's not like there are any APIs or any tools to kind of do a bulk pin or, you know, bulk ads or something like that. So it's a slow process to get everything up on Pinterest. So out of all of those, you know, you mentioned Facebook, you mentioned uh, Google Shopping, retargeting. Is there one that's giving you a noticeably better return on your ad spend than the others? Well, 
So I would say in terms of return on ad spend, I think Google Shopping is the best in terms of percentages. But because it's intent-based, in my opinion, there tends to be a, a threshold on how much traffic you can get. Facebook doesn't have as good of a return on ad spend as Google does, but it does have a ton more traffic, in my opinion, for, for what I'm doing. Because if, you know, there's only so much search traffic you'll get for things, but with Facebook, you can get so much more traffic depending upon how you can think to spend your targeting and your, and your ad positioning. If you had the bandwidth on Google Shopping, you'd dump it all into there, but Facebook gives you a lot more volume. Even if you're not making as much per sale, you can drive so many more sales and traffic. Yeah, okay. yeah, I, I really do believe that. And, and I think a lot of people in e-commerce have not really, you know, rolled up their sleeves and gotten into Facebook because it's such a, a quirky platform and it's a little tough and it's always changing. But in terms of having the people, it's... They definitely do, and they and they just recently had a developer conference last week, and so they definitely understand the position that they're in with regards to e-commerce merchants. So they're adding a lot more features to their platform to make that transition from ad or or organic post to purchase a lot smoother. Yeah, how are you doing that? I was talking with Ezra actually yesterday about. I mean, he uses Facebook a lot, but he kind of has a a really unique way of using it where it's not a hard sell. You don't post something in a timeline and hard sell a product. You kind of post an informational article, which brings brings people to an opt-in and then it kind of upsells to the product eventually. And I've heard a lot of merchants, we've talked about this in the forum a decent amount too, that like, it's tough. I mean, there's maybe a handful of markets where Facebook and Facebook advertising works really well for a pure e-commerce play, but a lot of merchants have trouble with it. So how are you, how are you structuring that? Are you sending people right to product pages? Are you just trying to build up a fan base? What's your strategy for using paid traffic on Facebook to drive sales? That's a really good question. So I have a few different things that I'm playing with. One of them is that I do, for the most part, most people go straight to product page or a modified product page that's laid out a little bit more like a landing page. Um, What I sell is not really uh, something that you really have to think about. You know, it's either you're familiar with that brand or you, you wear this or you don't. It's, it's not really a considered purchase or research purchase. For the most part, these are people who are replenishing what they've already had because it, it wears out and you have to get new ones or they're buying gifts. So it's not, I don't, for this specifically, I don't think the information opt-in funnel sequence is the right strategy. So I, I don't use that one for this specific product. I do see with other products how that would be the way to go, but not for what I have. So yes, I do send them straight to the product page and I really monitor the conversion based on the ads and so forth and so on. And then another strategy that I've been playing around with is for opt-ins is to offer something for free in a giveaway and to take opt-ins for that. And that has varied between about 12 and 22 cents per opt-in. Another strategy that I've used is to, and this one is a little tricky and I don't know what I'm going to do with this one, but I think it's, someone explained it to me and I think it's an interesting way to go. If you have something that doesn't cost very much, but has a high perceived value, what a few people are, are playing with in some of the Facebook groups that I'm in is offering that item for free with the customer only paying for the shipping and handling and then putting them into a funnel for either a continuity program or upselling them other items. So 
it it would be similar to a loss leader, but the goal is really to not like completely lose, just find something that is inexpensive but has a high perceived value. So when you said, kind of just backtracking a little bit, you said you were getting opt-ins at like 22 cents or 12 cents an opt-in. Mm-hmm. And so I'm guessing you're driving traffic to an, a landing page on your site where you've got an email address maybe for a, a guide or something like that to get people on your list. I'm guessing even if you did that, let's say let's say a third of people who land on your page opt-in, which I don't know, would a rough estimate. That means like if you're getting 12 cents an opt-in, that's like, are you driving people to your website on Facebook for like four cents a click? Oh, I see where you're going with that. It's kind of reverse engineering. Yeah, I was like, can, man, that yeah, is yeah, yeah. cheap. You can actually get traffic pretty cheap if you're doing something like a giveaway. You can actually get it pretty cheap. When you understand how Facebook works, then it makes a whole lot of sense. So just in a nutshell, this is how you have to think about Facebook. Because I think a lot of people add in so much information that it gets convoluted. And to really get people to understand it at its core level... It's really simple, but once you get it, you're like, aha, and it can take a while to really get it because people are always using the wrong words, and it drives me nuts. So Facebook is a pay-per-impression platform, no matter what, because people will say, oh, you can bid for clicks, you can bid for conversions. You pay for an impression, and that cost can be anywhere from a penny to a penny and a half on average, The more activity your ad gets, if it's a newsfeed ad, it's very, very complicated, so there's not like a straight path. But in general, if you can get an ad with a lot of activity, you get a better CPM price. So now you know that, right? So let's just say you can get an ad with really good activity going and your CPM is at five bucks. And CPM is cost per 1,000 impressions, right? Yes, Now, what you have to do is you have to make sure that your ad is good enough to get a high click-through rate. And in my experience, the biggest influence on your click-through rate is your photo. And it's not necessarily that you have to have a great photo. And sometimes you kind of got to play around. And I don't use scammy photos. It's not like I'm selling diet pills or anything like that. So I'm using those crazy exaggerated photos. It's not like that. But you really have to play around. And sometimes it's a matter of having a product on on a brightly colored background as opposed to white to really make sure that it pops out in the news feed. And you can always put multiple ads into one ad set and Facebook will optimize for the one that gets the highest click-through rate. So it's a little bit of a game. You know, you know that you're going to pay a certain amount for impressions. Let's get the click-through rate. And you kind of start, you can see early on where you're at. Like you can put something up on Facebook in the morning, come back at noon or two o'clock and get a pretty good feel for whether or not you were going to get a good click-through for the duration of that campaign. As long as you're not on a on a day like a Monday or something where it's difficult. But if you're like on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, so forth, you get a pretty good feel by noon or two o'clock if that's working. And then if it's not working, you swap it out for another photo, come back and look at that the next day. And if that's not working, you just keep going until you find one that works. And if you do that and you get enough activity and engagement coming through, then your CPM starts to drop over time as it optimizes. So you actually can get really cost-effective Facebook traffic 
when you understand how the system works and you can play to its strengths. And well, now I know what I'm going to title this episode, Four Cents Click, Four Cent Clicks on Facebook with Miracle Wanza. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. So really it's not, I mean, you can tell I've, I've dabbled in Facebook, haven't done dove nearly as deeply as you have, but if you're thinking about using Facebook at a cost per click, you're thinking about it wrong. You should be thinking about it as paying for a CPM, the, the, the impressions yeah. basis, like a banner ad, and then making sure that those that your ad performs really, really, really well yes. to maximize that CPM. And then you're not paying for clicks. You're just paying for uh, the impressions and then making yes. sure it just really performs at top. Yeah. And then there's another thing that I've been doing that I think I like better is, um, again, another strategy from these Facebook groups is one of the things that I've tried that I really like is to, if you're trying to do some content marketing, is to put, make an ad for your content on Facebook and then run that traffic because you can get that traffic really cheap. Like I said, great picture and content is definitely more headline driven than something else like an opt-in, but um, using that retargeting audience now is your audience to run the ads to. Oh, so the, the people that have come to your site in the past, now you can market to them, yeah. market content specifically to them, and it's cheaper than it otherwise would be. Right. So you use the content to get them in. And it's this is probably similar to what Ezra does. I just don't have a, a quote unquote funnel in place, but you use the content to get them to your site. And because that's filtered, you know, they click through on your content, they read it. Then now you can run ads to them. Oh, I see. Gaia. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. I had that backwards. You don't send content to the people who've been on your site. You use the Push. content to get them there and then you send them the product. Gaia. And then, you, then you can make the, the audience of just the people who've seen mm-hmm. it and retarget to them. Perfect. Yeah. Gaia. Yeah. Miracle, I want to shift gears just a little bit. You've built you know, this amazing business while, while being a mom, which is you know one of the reasons you got into e-commerce in the first place. And you know, just kind of speaking candidly, like the entrepreneurial e-commerce space, I mean, at least looking at like a lot of the store owners I interact with and you look at like the form, the private form membership, it's predominantly male. I was talking with Laura, our community manager about this, probably, you know, like five or six to one and got this message from someone recently running a business as a mom. She just wrote in and said, you know, in my entrepreneurial circles, I'm the only woman and the only mom. And I, I almost always feel out of the loop as I don't, I don't feel like anyone relates to my life even remotely at all. So I just, I mean, it's not something people talk about a lot and I'd love to hear like, was this a struggle for you at all getting started or was it not an issue? And if it was like, how did you deal with it? Yeah. So I ran this by a couple of my friends because I have two really good friends. We're all women. (laughs) Me and another friend both have a child or more and the other one doesn't have a child. And we generally, even me myself, I don't really like mom groups. I'm in one women's entrepreneurs group and that's the only one. And I haven't, I don't really like the mom groups, and I know this is a little bit not politically correct to say, but I don't want to be necessarily around people who have my same background and my same experiences and who can relate to my life, because then I'm not getting the benefit of someone else's experience and someone else's path. I actually like being in the groups with guys because my industry is very... well. I it's not even predominantly female because there are a lot of sales reps and people who are guys, but I find like there are differences in perspective that guys have, especially because in my opinion, I think men are socialized very, very differently than women. And you can see that when it comes to business. And I like having the benefit 
of the experience of others and the different perspective of others. So it was never an issue for me because I felt like if I was in a group of a bunch of moms, then, and I do have friends who are moms and who have businesses, but in terms of when I go into these e-commerce groups or, you know, very, very specific niche groups, like I've been in a couple masterminds from the dynamite circle and I'm usually the only woman in them. And that's fine with me because I don't want to have the benefit of a bunch of experiences that are, you know, 50, 60, 70% similar to mine. I want to get the experience of someone who has a totally completely different thing going on because I like that kind of diversity. So it's never really been an issue for me. You mentioned, uh, you kind of said in there that men and women have very different uh, are, are kind of socialized differently. What did you mean by that? Because I think that for a, a good example of this is I think because women tend to manage household finances, we're very, very, in most cases, thrifty when it comes to money. And so a lot of times I notice, especially when we talk about things like ads and things like that, a lot of women are are very, very tight with their budget on ads that I see even in the groups that I belong to, whereas guys are a little bit more loose and they'll spend more money once they understand, you know, how much money they're going to spend versus how much revenue they're going to get. And I had someone who was coaching me on, you know, running the paid traffic. And I, and I mentioned that to him that I kind of think that it's a difference in socialization. And since, you know, women tend to control household budgets, it's a little scary to start spending a lot of money every single day on paid traffic. And he kind of laughed because his assistant who sets up his campaigns is the same way. And he's always (laughs) having to tell her, you know, spend more money, spend more money. And sometimes she still doesn't spend enough. And he has to go in there and modify the budgets himself. And I think that's one of the ways that you see a difference in how we're socialized and, you know, how that impacts you in business. And even when I look at the form, you tend to see guys, I mean, they're, I don't want to say that they're less risk averse, but they're definitely probably more willing to put more money at risk, so to speak, you know, than a lot of women are. And they're definitely willing to kind of go bigger what's, for what's the most one, part. What's one of the things, I mean, that's definitely maybe a net advantage if we're kind of just kind of taking broad strokes for some guys being a little more willing to take risks. What's something that maybe an entrepreneurship that that us guys could really benefit from in terms of just our makeup and again, speaking very generally here, but things that, that maybe a female entrepreneur does really well that we could take some cues from that traditionally we're pretty terrible at. I think um, women are better at nuance, so to speak. And I think a lot of guys don't see the nuance. And I think there are a lot of cases where nuance can be really important. You know, I've worked on projects with other guys and, and when they see something like a product or a brand, Sometimes, even if it's something that they they are more familiar with, like it's not like a guy's trying to sell something that's really a woman's product and he doesn't understand it, there's a big picture focus and, and sometimes a lack of appreciation for the way that nuance makes a difference in a market or in building a brand. That's a broad generality, but I think that's one of the things that, that guys can pick up from women. I think because women are so... Probably I just more in tune with that. We may get some mail and some comments on this one, Miracle. You'll have to, <laughs> <laughs> you'll have to dive in with me and, and fend back the, uh, the replies if we get them. Yeah, I'm sure. What's, uh, no, it's good though. I, it's something I was going to talk about and I love, uh, 
Yeah, it's, it's something that doesn't get talked about a lot, but I think it's a it's an important issue. It's, I wish we had more time to dive into it because we could probably probably do a whole episode on it. But want to ask quickly before we we're out of time here, what uh, what's coming up for you in the future? Are you, do you have plans to grow the existing two sites that you have now and just keep growing those? Are you planning on branching out into anything differently? Is there is there anything that you're looking to do differently in the future, given you know kind of the changes you're seeing in e-commerce? What's coming down the pipe for you? If there's anything I would be looking to do differently, I think what I would be looking to do differently, when I got started, I was driven by the product. Like, this is what I sell. And I think at this point, I want to be driven more by the process. Having the ability to set up a website with really optimized conversion, with a really good funnel. (laughs) Like I said, I don't have that because I know that Ezra has that kind of setup. So that if I have opportunities to either buy or make or private label a product, that I can just put that product into the pipeline and know that I can go from startup to revenue in a certain amount of time. So really just getting more systemized with bringing new products to market for you, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that there are a lot of opportunities and I run across like a lot of opportunities and a lot of really great products to sell, but I don't necessarily have the setup to get that up and running without, you know, a, a lot of just work and wasted time and wasted energy. But if the process was more streamlined, I'd be positioned to take advantage of those opportunities. Miracle, it's been it's been such a pleasure having you in the forum. Thank you for I mean, you've made so many contributions there. Really appreciate it and appreciate you coming on and and talking about your story and Facebook and and you know, female entrepreneurship. It's it's been fun to dive into this. Thanks. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week. But if you're interested in launching your own e-commerce store, download my free 55-page ebook on niche selection and getting started. And if you're a bit more experienced, look into the e-commerce fuel private forum. It's a vetted community for store owners with at least 4,000 in monthly sales or industry professionals with at least a year or more experience in the e-commerce space. You can learn more about both the ebook and the form at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much for listening. And I'm looking forward to seeing you again next Friday.